Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name's Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. And I'm Dave Gibbons. And we are signing out the year 2021 at the stroke of midnight, unpacking Watchmen, issue number 12. Every single month of this year, we took a look at an issue of Watchmen. We thought we had to ring out uh, this year in a strong fashion by bringing Uncle Dave Gibbons onto the, onto the show to unpack the ultimate the final issue of Watchmen. Dave, first off, thank you so much for coming by uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe to do this with us. This is very special. Great. Well, you know, um, I'm very happy to be here. I enjoy all the stuff you guys put on, and I've been dipping in and out of your your reading of Watchmen so far, um, and uh, I found it very interesting. And indeed, on this last issue, um, you know, I, I think it makes a good finale, particularly because I've also pulled out Alan Moore's um, original script. So hopefully I've got some insight from that that, that I can give you uh, and your, uh, your watchers. So fantastic, man. One of the things leading up to uh, this issue, you know, we have our great Watching the Watchmen book, which we highly recommend to, to anybody in the audience out there. You got to get your hands on this. Like we described it as you know, sacred tablets, the recipe for, for making a, uh, a masterpiece comic. It's, it's in here, all the extra work that you've done. And we've highlighted this one particular part that is just <laughs> incredible, man. I call it the prison calendar. Yeah. Where you're like, let's, let's describe what we're looking at here. These are the issues. Yeah. And then this is the amount of pages on this axis here. Yeah. And you, uh, as you put in a hard day's work, by the end of the day, you get to put an X and, and rest your head on the pillow. Yeah, it, no, it was it was kind of um, a, a left leaning line would be penciled. That would mean I penciled it, and the right leaning line would mean that I'd inked it, and that crossed the crossed that that page off. I think I started doing this when DC kind of imposed a schedule on us, which was different than the one that Alan and I had hoped for. And it was obvious that time was going to get really, really tight. Uh, and with a huge project like this, you know, you have to kind of keep keep an overview of it. Uh, and this was what I came up with um, as an overview. Uh, the, the, the column on the right, which is C, uh, is obviously covers because the covers were done separately, uh, you know, and at, at a different time than the bulk of the work. And you can also see on issue 12 that there are some X's which are just kind of hanging out there. That's because issue 12 was a 32 pages of story issue rather than 28 pages of story. So, uh, yeah, so that that and I used to refer to it as my prison chart. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we've been unpacking old um, comics journal issues, Amazing Heroes, and we've seen some evidence of Watchmen being mentioned all the way back uh, to 1984. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have any sense of like the start date and the stop date of, of your of your penciling of, of page one? Or, or or yeah, I guess penciling of page one. Now I know that there's all this extra work that was done in a pre preliminary fashion, but I just mm -hmm. wonder if you have some sense about the amount of time it took you to put pencil to paper on the actual comic book. Wow. You know, I mean, I, I I did keep the original envelope that Alan sent me the first script in. So that kind of would have been the, the actual date of me starting to pencil it. And and obviously, as I outline in the Watching the Watchman book, 
it wasn't just that I'd get a sheet of paper out for page one and just start drawing on that. I'd plan the whole thing out in thumbnails um, and then I'd, you know, go through and lay the whole thing out and then pencil it and then ink it. I mean, it's, it's all described in exhaustive detail in that book. Um, but, you know, Alan and I probably started to talk about it maybe even a year before I actually started to draw. Uh, I remember being at the 1984 Chicago Comic Convention, and that was when I actually went up to Dick Giordano, who's the managing editor of DC, and said, hey, this thing that Alan's working on for you, I'd really like to draw it. So that was the point at which I was told, okay, it's yours. So it really started from then. And in between that date and starting on Watchmen, Alan and I also did a Superman annual, which meant we were, in, we were having a lot of discussions about that and doing designs and everything for Watchmen in the background while we were working on that. So yeah, 1984 was when the seed was really planted. Uh, but it was about a year after that, that actually the materials that were finally printed started to come together. When you start drawing pages and you, you're accumulating issues, uh, when, where did the bottleneck occur? Like, did you have maybe three issues done before the first issue hits the stands? Yeah. Um, you know, as I say, we had a, a schedule from the very beginning, me and Alan, that we worked out to be the time that we could comfortably do the work in. And the interesting thing is that if we kept to that schedule, the last issue of Watchmen would not have been late. It would have it would have come exactly monthly. Uh, and we were a little bit pissed off because it was quite important to us that, you know, not only did we make it as good as we could, but that it was there in the comic book shops on the due date. Uh, and indeed, I got some feedback from comic book store owners who said, you know, how frustrating it is for readers to go in to pick up the latest issue of the comic they're following, and it isn't there. You know, it's it's a very disappointing experience. But, and also for the retailers, they they can count on a certain day that if that's when the new Watchmen comes out, loads of people are going to be in and they're going to sell loads of other comics as well. So they up their orders of everything else when they've got a real, what you might call a banker, you know. Um, so we, we were late. We weren't very, very late. I think people get us confused with that other... Brit, Brian Bolland, who managed, who's a very good friend of mine, but who managed to be like a year late on the final issue of Camelot 3000. I, I believe we slipped a bit on the 11th issue, and I believe the 12th issue was about a month late. It may have been a couple of months, but it certainly wasn't very, very late. Um, and as I say, if, if DC hadn't imposed a hurry-up schedule on us, we, we would have hit it, you know, bang on target. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the great retailer out in the West Coast, Brian Hibbs, uh, when he's interviewing people, uh, sometimes they'll bring up uh, the, the the lateness of Watchmen, and he mm -hmm. equates it with um, pe people's confusion not with not with uh, Camelot 3000, but with Dark Knight Returns, where the last uh, couple issues of that were 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 pretty late in between, and you know that coming out the same the same year essentially. Uh, but he's right. yeah he he concurs. He's like. It, it, it was 12 issues of comics that came out in 13 months. Not bad. Yeah. But of course, you do do get to that point when the schedule really starts to bite. You know, the, the pressure is on it on for you to do it quicker. But, you know, when you spent eight or nine or 10 issues carefully doing something, 
you can't just sacrifice everything just just to be there in time. And I think ultimately that's not what the readers would want. And, you know, ultimately, when you're looking back on it from a perspective of 30 years away or more, you think, well, I'm really glad that although I worked hard, I didn't get panicked and rushed that that final issue. And one thing that's come to light, I mean, rereading this final issue for the purposes of this discussion was how much work there is in there. I couldn't believe the amount of drawing. I mean, I couldn't approach that now. And to think that, you know, I was doing more or less a page of that a day. I, I'm just staggered by my own ability to buckle down and do it. Um, I hope that doesn't sound immodest, but obviously at the time you're kind of in the eye of the hurricane. Um, and you don't realize till you look back as I am now exactly what you've got, you know? Worth mentioning the, uh, in addition to drawing it as the hand lettering, which, you know, we do a lot of hand lettering here. That can be hours per page. Like that is not a fast task no. to put on top of drawing elaborate comics of this degree. Um, you know, and especially over the course of hundreds of pages, I mean, you're talking about months of time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually like doing the hand lettering. I, I don't think Watchmen could have happened as well as it did if I didn't do my own hand lettering, because particularly on the last few issues where it, there are some very text heavy pages, it has to fit. And if you did it in the normal way of just drawing it and then somebody else adds balloons on it, it, it just would have lost that kind of meticulously planned look. And you'd have, you, you know, you'd have been pasting balloons over um important information and stuff like that but i actually really enjoyed doing the lettering because you know when you've been working really hard penciling a whole issue it's really nice to have a, a few days a week maybe where all you do is letter it because that's a much more mechanical repetitive kind of task uh, and it also gives you a chance to look over what you've done and to actually in a way plan as you're looking at it how you're going to ink it um, and so although, yeah, I mean, that was kind of a time sink. I think it was an integral part of it. And I think it actually, because it gave me some days kind of rest from the creative burden of it uh, and a chance to overlook everything, I think that worked very much to its benefit. Would you letter the complete issue before beginning penciling and just, just have, you know, paper that was not blank? Uh, yeah, well, the thing that, that, that I would do is I had a load of pages kind of pre-ruled up into nine panel grids, which I got my wife and my son just to kind of line, line the gutters in using a template that I'd made that was, that was accurate. And so I'd have a pile of pages with the, with the panel shapes already blue penciled on there. And, that, and I would then look at my thumbnails and I would in light blue pencil kind of redraw the thumbnails onto the big board only very loosely only to get a sense of how I was going to cut cover the ground and then I'd know where the balloons were going to be and I'd rule in the lettering lines and I'd actually pencil in the copy the words and see how that fitted and that might sometimes mean that I'd have to redraw sometimes the picture just to make it fit better so I'd keep everything quite fluid. There'd be lightly penciled artwork, lightly penciled lettering. And then when I got it all balanced, I would then ink all the lettering in. I'd ink all the balloon shapes in. I'd rule up all the panel borders. And I would then draw within that, bringing the loose pencils up to a bigger finish. So, uh, you know, because it's the, 
it's the breakdown into panels and it's the space that the lettering takes up that you can't violate you know that's that is set in stone but the drawing you can always adjust to to fit better looking at the thumbnails and that watching the watchmen book uh mm -hmm. they look so close to the final compositions almost one for one it feels like i wonder if you use something like the artograph projector to enlarge your thumbnails and kind of trace off the the major bits or were you just eyeballing it yeah i mean i i did have an artograph projector at that time and, and i've always used whatever technical aids help, help me do the job properly but i found with this that i i could really do it freehand because most of the pictures were kind of um manageable in their size and scope you know if you're doing a big splash page where there's a load of action figures and stuff going on it isn't a bad idea to do a really tight thumbnail that you then put in a projector to get all these elements sorted but watchman was a much kind of uh, what shall i say almost a mechanical kind of thing it was it was it, it was more controlled and it was quite formal i think uh, and um, I found that I was able to do it best if I just eyeballed those small little, you know, parts of the of the nine panel grid. I believe actually on this final issue, on the, the scenes at the intersection, the full page pictures, I believe that I did actually um, artograph up uh, compositions for that because they do get quite complex. And it's much easier to sort those problems out small and then bl then blow them up. Uh, and then then draw the details in. But by and large, everything in Watchmen was just just eyeballed. Um, and I've always been an advocate of doing really tight thumbnails because although you have to hold your nerve because, you know, while you're doing thumbnails, you're not getting any actual pages drawn. Always in the end, it saves you time and always in the end, it makes it less stressful. It, it makes it more like you're finishing something that you've already done. You know, if you get a sheet of those thumbnails, and hold them at arm's length and squint you can almost see the completed page uh, and so it then makes what you're doing when you actually pencil it full size really just it's just the drawing you've done the difficult bit you've done the layout you've done the relationship of what's what's in the panels to what's on the rest of the page and the drawing bit of it actually starts to feel quite quite relaxed there was all that preliminary work that, that was done, designing the characters, designing uh, the different ages of comedian's face, all of mm -hmm. this stuff. And correct me if I'm mistaken, but you don't get paid for that. Well, no, you, you don't get paid for it, but much as with the thumbnails, if you've got a model sheet, particularly when it's a fairly complex thing you're dealing with, with you know, having multiple characters at multiple ages, in multiple time frames, in a way, time spent planning it and making sure it works it is is kind of time saved. And rather than have to mess around on the final page and and start erasing and redrawing stuff there, it's much better just to know. Oh, okay, so I now have to draw the comedian in 1946, and you you get your model sheet out, and there is the comedian in 1946, and it it keeps a consistency as well because. There's the other thing that can happen with character designs is that you kind of drift. If you draw the character on panel one, page one, and then you have to draw him several times throughout the issue, by the time you get to the last page, 
he doesn't really look much like the way he looked on the first page. But if you've got a model sheet pinned to your drawing board, you, you look at that all the time to draw him. So you get you, it's easier to maintain the consistency of the designs and of the likenesses. I mean, is this something that, that you would do for for 2000 AD strips or, or Green Lantern? Uh, I, I say that because, I mean, this is an extremely ambitious project and, and looking on it in, in retrospect, you know, it's so tight, it's so perfect. Like, but was that the, was that the mentality going into it that you're going to like really swing for the fences and try and try to make something mm -hmm. incredible? Because that's a that's a lot of work that's done ahead of time that isn't that isn't done uh, for for most comics and Watchmen. Uh, it's a it's an unknown quantity at that point. You guys you guys mm -hmm. are taking a gamble in, in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Watchmen, which would differentiate it from some of the other things I did. That it was that it was actually the the detail and the content and the that complexity that was the point of, of Watchmen. Something like Dan Dare in 2018. It was a science fiction action strip. So what you were really doing was just drawing action and exciting de de designs, and the story exposition and the story content of each individual picture wasn't was kind of fairly loose you couldn't lose the sense of the story by you, you know by drawing things in slightly the wrong place or not quite accurately whereas with Watchmen it was very formal it was very precise you couldn't really move anything out without spoiling the whole thing there was less wiggle room it was drawing much more to a tight brief um, so although I did thumbnails for the 2000 AD stuff and the other DC stuff um, they were never as detailed as this. They would have the solid blacks dropped in because I find that that's really important, but they would be much more scribbly, much looser, much bigger even, you know, m maybe print size rather than, than tiny little thumbnail size. Because again, what you were trying to get into them was energy and excitement rather than detail and accuracy. Dave, as, as you get into, you know, like we talk about this being an unknown in the beginning, but here you are like drawing issue 12. Do you remember your what you were feeling emotionally at that point? Was it relief, anticipation, sadness? Like what goes through your head? Because I mean, this is what, a couple of years of your life at that point when you sit down to, to you know, finish up issue 12. What are you feeling yeah. then? Well, you're feeling quite a lot of pressure. I mean, I would occasionally wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, shit, I've got another 60 pages of this to draw. Am I ever going to get there? Because it was by the nature of it that until you had the whole thing, you didn't have anything. You know, they could have drafted somebody else into finish writing it or finish drawing it or inking it or, or lettering it. But it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have worked. I think one of the things, and again, I'm looking at this from a distance and I'm not being arrogant, well, one of the things that makes Watchmen is its utter consistency. It's 12 completely consistent issues, the same creative team, the same approach, you know. And I think that adds a lot of power to it. Whereas if they'd swapped in a different penciler for a couple of issues in the middle, you know, it would, no matter how much they tried to ape what I did, it never would have been the same. So, yeah, I, I was quite concerned that we would ever finish it. And I think also there's the pressure of success. I mean, I remember after we'd done maybe the first two or three issues, going to New York and being 
treated like visiting royalty by the DC offices. People coming out of their offices, clapping us on the back, shaking our hands, telling us we were geniuses. Even Howard Chaykin saying that what we'd done was fucking A, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You think, oh, my God, there's a, now there's all this expectation. I can't let people down. And, you know, somehow, miraculously, you do finally get to that square on your prison chart and you do find yourself putting that final um, X in. Um, so I guess it is a question of professionalism and holding your nerve and keeping going no matter what. And obviously in those two years, there were all sorts of the normal life events and the other stuff that just happens like Christmas time and like vacations and like family crises. And somehow you just keep rolling on. I, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm as amazed as anybody else from the perspective of now that we ever managed to do it. And I actually, when I was looking through the script, I came across from a, I came across a note from Alan, the scribble in the margin. Dave, sorry, this is only one page. I've got an issue of Swamp Thing to finish. So while Alan was writing, I mean, forget me drawing it. While while Alan was writing it, he was also doing incredible work on on Swamp Thing, and probably half a dozen other things as well. Um, so his his concentration on on the story was was quite amazing as well. Uh, before we before we get into the issue, uh, just one other uh, quick question. Um, you finish page thirty two. You finish the last little bits of design stuff. Uh, how do you reward yourself for good behavior? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, well, I, I have got a little anecdote about sending off the final the final issue. I'll save that till the end of our discussions this afternoon. Make but a note. Just, we, we can't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the sense of tremendous relief of just, I have done it. It is done. Um, and of course, then you enter that kind of post-watchman thing. And there was a lot of, post-watchman stuff i mean we went on a, a a kind of a tour of england to publicize it i mean it wasn't exactly rock and roll but we you know we had some fun doing that and of course we were really lucky people universally liked it we got huge crowds of people waiting to get their books signed and we got huge amounts of press coverage and also on the back of it i in particular um got offered the chance to do lots of things that I might otherwise not have been offered to, to do. So I guess it, it the, the halo effect of Watchmen, you know, has lasted for a long, long time afterwards. But as to the specifics of did I go out and get drunk or did I go and have a have a, have a week in the south of France or something, I, I can't remember anything like that at all. It was just how much lighter everyday life seemed because I'd <laughs> finally killed the beast, you know? For sure, man. And uh, you know, let's be let's be good storytellers about that and, and save more of that chatter yes. for for the end of the issue. Cartoonist Kayfabe, the YouTube channel, is subsidized by the comics that we make. Coming out in March and April 2022, Jim Rugg's Hulk Grand Design, where he takes 40 years of Incredible Hulk comics, distills it down into a high octane romp, man, 40 pages a piece. One month after the other, Hulk Monster comes first. Hulk Madness comes the following month. Jim, what do you have to say about this thing? I say this, cartoonist kayfabe community out there, I want this to be the most requested comic that comic book shop owners have ever seen. This is your marching orders. Take your phones, show this to those comic shop owners, tell them you want this, tell them to pre-order and to order heavy. Take your previews catalog, whatever it is, 
take Hulk Grand Design, show it to your comic shop owners until they're sick to death of seeing this thing. I want it to be the most requested book comic shop owners have ever seen. That is your marching orders, Cartoonist Kayfabe Nation. Can I show them a couple of these variant covers, Jimmy? They come in a lot of good flavors too, man. There goes the Eddie P variant, man, by way of Uncle Todd McFarlane. But you know I had to capture, because this is going to be in the origin issue, had to capture that old John Romita, Herb Trippy design. Who do we got here? Marcos Martin. And Peach Momoko coming in in the clutch, man. The cottage industry unto herself, man. Presenting us with a She-Hulk Hulk cover. March 2022. Comic shops, get on the ball with that stuff. And while you're at it, Red Room, the anti-social network, is in stores right now on Amazon. Uh, finer comic shops everywhere. Murder on the dark web for fun and profit. Collecting the entire 2021 season of Red Room Comics. 70 pages of extra material in the back and throughout this book and starting in February 2022 uh, monthly you're gonna get Red Room trigger warnings four issues of this season's worth of comics this is the cover that you're gonna be seeing regularly so when you take your little uh, phone and show it to your retailer tell them to get you those Hulk comics put that Red Room uh, comic on your on your docket as well there's the Eddie P retail incentive variant Peach Momoko once again the cottage industry man comes through in the clutch and the great Jim Rugg, by way of Robert Crumb, doing his Zap Comics Zero uh, homage. Once again, this channel, subsidized by the comics that we present. Man, YouTube doesn't pay us a penny. So without further ado, we're done paying the bills. Let's get let's, back to the video. Let's begin to unpack this as we did uh, all year 2021, man, with uh, panel one on the cover. That, that, that Heinz ketchup like blood. <laughs> on that doomsday clock there in the in the middle of uh, the big the big city and obviously calling back to our smiley face icon you know the two icons that have been through watchmen from the very get-go from from cover number one that smiley face that bright yellow and the doomsday clock and it's all come yeah. together here on on number 12. yeah dave would would uh would alan have like a very detailed description of the cover image also most of the cover images, we never actually, you know, wrote anything down. We just have a chat on the on the phone, and and it was it was obvious that that the final cover had to be midnight, or indeed it's just about a second or two before midnight, and it's actually midnight on page one, which we we're, we're now seeing, um, and we knew there had to be blood everywhere, so uh, it was one of the easier covers to do, really. We've been teasing uh, for for pretty much the entire comic, the the the, the pale horse show at Madison Square Garden's going down, and mm -hmm. here we get to see what the uh, what the pale horse fans look like. A couple mm -hmm. of knot tops, perhaps, man. A lot of metal heads. Mm -hmm. Definitely of the same uh, persuasion, you know, like like when you go to a Kiss concert or something, and you see a bunch of Gene Simmons makeup yeah. or something. It was interesting rereading this uh, this week and thinking about sort of the pandemic and lockdown and seeing like a concert and a gathering because you hear of that over the course of the last year, you know, when concerts started to open up again. And it really mm -hmm. kind of uh, a strange relevance in a way, seeing these opening panels of crowds gathered together. Um, I guess, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, it, we do imply that it is a huge gathering of people. We were sometimes slightly pulled up about the knot tops because in in Britain, we had kind of youth gangs that were quite easily identifiable by the way they dress, like, you know, mods and rockers. We, we've even talked about this before because it was part of my 
of, of my background. So we figured that Pale Horse were the band of the knot top. So every, every knot top in New York would turn out for the Pale Horse comic. It was the event of the decade. Um, there is one little detail on this first page, which is often perplexed people. Um, and uh, I don't know if you're going to bring it up at all, but, it, but if you look down towards the door that's hanging off its hinges, there's a little piece of yellow paper. Uh, yeah, oh, with yeah. a number with a number written on it. Is that the DC pay thing? It's, it's the DC job number. Right. Uh, and it's really weird because it doesn't appear on any of the other pages as, as far as I can see. But people have, have, have read all kinds of stuff into that, that it's some kind of coded message or it's something to do with Vite or it's, but it's not, it just happens to be the, the DC job number of Watchmen issue 12. Did, did they put that number in there? Is that done after you turn in your pages? Yeah, 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 it was. And, and uh, I mean, uh, if I'd known it was going to be in there, I'd have asked them to, to take it out because it's, it's a real relic of the old way of doing comics. And as I say, to the best of my knowledge, they successfully removed it on every other splash page, uh, except for this one where it could be, you know, have some supposed significance. You know, I, I love that it's included in a way because I often think of Watchmen and its history in the genre of superhero comics. So having a job number there that's a part of all those superhero comics historically, it's kind of neat to have that that relic in there, uh, that yeah. reference to the history. Yeah, it's it's the latest in a long line of DC comics. You know, it's kind of there, there in the ledger book, you know? Dave, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to say this to you, man, but as a as a consequence of that nine panel grid and the rhythm that you guys have established mm -hmm. over 11 issues of that mm -hmm. nine panel grid, these splashes took you forever, I'm sure. It took you two days or whatever. But when it's yeah. time to read the comic as a kid and, you know, going forward... It's like, okay, yep, yeah, panel, uh-huh, panel, panel, <laughs> panel, panel. Oh, I like, know. You know, you, you go through it so quick. So This so, is the anticipation of the rise of image comics. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, with a critical eye and like like looking closer at, at the imagery, I really took it in, this, this go-around, maybe for the first time mm -hmm. ever reading it, of the many dozens of times that I've read it. And you see the expanse. You see bodies off into the distance, like going all the way back to the horizon line, almost the vanishing point, there, there are, whatever the capacity of Madison Square Garden is, it's filled up with uh, Pale Horse fans. And you've established the Knot Tops in, in earlier issues as being a gang, but you've established a lot of civilian characters, and we're gonna get to see all those poor bastards who converged on Times Square or uh, mm -hmm. is Times Square Madison, where Madison Square Garden is? No, no, no. It's it's uh, Madison Square Garden, and it's near Penn, Penn Station, Penn. I believe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I, and I know we've got a lot of pages to get through, and I won't be coming in with a 10-minute anecdote for every single page, but I, I actually discovered on Google Maps, I've actually discovered kind of really where that intersection is, and the weird thing is that I've actually stayed on a, in a hotel, which is on the corner of it it's, it's diagonally across from Penn Station which puts us where the cab company was okay in, in in Watchmen and on the other side of the street where Bernie the news vendor had his stand yes there actually is a newsstand um I mean I, I mean there are some inaccuracies and also being from a little English town 
I kind of underestimated the width of American city streets. But it, but it, it, it is an actual intersection, and it's that intersection where Penn Station is, and you look, you look across, and you can see Madison Square Garden, sort of where I've drawn it. We're looking at uh, this is the watch salesman that we that we saw in uh, the the previous issue, a couple of. He is the watchman. He is the watchman. The the watchman. Dave, yeah. what level of detail is 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 in a script for like you know we see an airship that looks like a bomb implanted in the building in in a background. Um, how much detail are you getting for these pages in terms of what to include on them? Okay, well, I mean, I could read you out a little bit. I did come across one that that's uh, is how the hell do you how do you draw this? If we were to go to because what well, this is pages two three. If you go to page four, right? I'll read this out very quickly. Okay, so page four. Full page pick again. Here we have turned exactly 90 degrees to our right. Please jungle, jumble these, judge, please juggle these descriptions to fit if you want the shot from a more oblique angle, looking at the corners, like you said, rather than down the streets. To the left, we see the bit of the utopia we didn't see last time. Very clearly see the poster for the movie currently showing the day the earth stood still. This is in mute counterpoint to the fantastic and horrific spill of bodies emerging from the damned cinema. Looking down the street past the spell, spill of stiffs in the foreground, we can see that the Gunga Diner elephant has crashed in the background amongst the wrecked and smoking cars and litter and scattered. It just goes on and on like that for a whole, for a whole page of, of uh, typescript. And also Alan's pointing out that it's very silent, that all we can hear is, is a light flapping of newspapers being born in the breeze. So there's, you know, each one of those has got that, that amount of detail in it, um, most of which I drew because it was necessary, some of which I didn't draw. Um, but I, I mean, again, having reread it for the first time in decades, it's it's like a month's project to come up with a with an illustration like that these these days. Dave, is, um, this, is this a panorama shot? If we if we butted all of the splash pages up together, would it be? It kind of is. It, it kind of is because it starts on Madison Square Garden with the with the knot tops hanging out the window, pulls back to the next page, and then goes round to the to the right as we look at it. So. It's as if you're standing in the middle of the intersection and you're looking at each corner in turn. So they don't exactly join. It's not a continuous panorama, but they are the snapshots taken at the kind of four points of the compass. Amazing. And 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 I actually did a plan of it, you know, to make sure I got, got everything right and that I could have transitional things that you could see in one shot that then went, went across to the other one. Indeed, if there's one thing... I'm going to have to stop talking so much, guys. I know, but 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 if there's th this opening speech by me is the equivalent of having full page pictures. Okay, so these are like full full page diatribes by me <laughs> that will get shorter when when we get to the more granular pages. But the thing that I wished, I mean, these single page pictures are really impressive, given that there are no other single page pictures. They seem vast and complex and everything. But what I actually wish we had have had, if we'd had room, was a double page spread after these single pages that was a kind of a, an airborne panoramic shot of everything, you know, a really hyper, super detailed New York City so we could see exactly the extent and the scale of everything. My only 
self-criticism is that we feel very close up to this. And I think we probably need the sense of how it relates to the rest of the city and how, how huge it is. Um, so yeah, anyway, that, that's my comment there. That sounds fantastic. Speaks to like uh, Katsuhiro Otomo in uh, Akira, right after, yes. after the, bomb, the bomb burst. Look at the levels yeah. of depth we have here, man. Foreground, tentacle, and then Dave will just cut in this smoke to just add more layers of depth and look, I mean, there's 15, 16 different. We talk about it a lot whenever we're looking at various comics and how hard it is to draw rubble, destruction, uh, this mm -hmm. kind of, like literally this kind of a drawing and how difficult it is. I mean, you don't spend that much time drawing this, you know, dead bodies, inanimate bodies. I'm impressed mm -hmm. by like the different textures, you know, like a lot of these things, there are these wet pieces on the ground. You pointed out smoke, Ed, there's cracked up like concrete, the broken glass. Like being mm -hmm. able to call out all these different textures, I think is really uh, an impressive piece because I imagine getting a script that is, this is what's described to draw. This this is nightmare stuff for an artist to try to figure out how to make pages look good with this content. In fact, those those smoke trails and the the kind of liquid um, areas on the street, they they actually provide a bit of relief from the detail. They're they're kind of open areas, and I obviously where I've drawn one of those, I don't have to draw anything else behind it. Um, but no, I mean that was a conscious de decision to play off sort of hyper detail, very com complicated passages with quite simple, graphically flat areas. It creates movement too. There's an implication of time by seeing smoke rising out of various places and even variation in the smoke that's coming out, you know, some from buildings that, that you know, fires from buildings or whatever, and the smoke in the yeah. foreground. So you have that quiet scene and a lot of dead bodies finding motion there to kind of imply the time, like we're watching this. This isn't just yeah. a snapshot. This is, you could stare at this. This is what's happening here. Create so many yeah, good I, shapes too. With I, I, I was, sorry, I, I was, I was going to say, I, I think also the, um, the, the little bits of paper that are flying around, I think add animation to it. Uh, there's, isn't there a name for it in animation where you have a character standing still, but you just have their eyes blinking every so often. And it brings the whole thing thing alive. So I think you're right. Yeah, the smoke and the bits of paper give animation to it because these things obviously can't hang in the air static. They are moving. So, yeah. Calls to mind um, War of the Worlds for me with all the war headlines floating through everywhere. And, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. that's a that's a story that's near and dear to me. So seeing that mm -hmm. here, uh, did that come up in conversation, Dave, with Alan Moore, the idea of like Orson Welles War of the Worlds kind of broadcast and... and I don't know, conveying some of that. Um, it, it's I, it's the whole story in a way, but yeah, I I don't I can't remember anything that specifically alluded to War of the Worlds. Um, but yeah, I can see there is that kind of overwhelming feel about it, like the war is ev everywhere. Um, no, I I can't say that that is a memory that one. We've established uh, a number of civilian characters throughout uh throughout the series and uh we get to revisit them all one last time in this in the splash pages here we have the uh detectives from from the very beginning you see the handcuffs right there on our guy man don't let you forget that that that's a that's a flat foot right there we have mm -hmm. our lesbian cab driving hack and her girlfriend who were fighting on the corner not far away from the uh psychiatrist or psychologist i always forget which is which i'm not rich enough to see either so like i don't know the difference 
uh, with his he's wife. He's a psychiatrist. I think he's a psychiatrist. Uh, the Promethean cab stand is there. And of course, the lover's, uh, you know, image on the building, which is going to come up again in a minute with Dr. Manhattan uh, very mm -hmm. nicely. Yeah, for sure, man. And then uh, here we have the two Bernies mm -hmm. with the uh, with the alien face right there, man. Yeah. And, and the little little detail in there on the face of the building, where, which said it said something like the Institute for interspatial studies or something and you now can see highlighted or all die wow never freaking seen that before dave this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> um and the other thing that i didn't notice that my wife pointed out to me was because i'd drawn quite a lot of these spark hydrants these electric hydrants where you recharge your car again a kind of a common sight in, increasingly in, in places these days but I didn't realize that, you know, with the two slots for the prongs of the plug and the thickness of the indentation, that that actually made a smiley face. But she noticed it. And indeed, she noticed it and told me in time that I could have a little speck of blood going over that recharging plug. So, uh, you know, serendipity is happening all the time. Got to shout props. on When you see a page like this, man, I got to shout props to John Higgins. On, on his color work because he's just adding to the chaos using mm -hmm. using every crayon in the crayon box man Roy G Biv is on this page baby <laughs> oh yeah no no I mean I would never I would never overlook John's contribution to it and of course what's what's nice I mean it was done in a fairly crude old-fashioned comic comics method which I'm sure you're familiar with you know where it's different percentages of cyan yellow magenta and black and so not only does the colorist have to paint it all in as a color guide, but they also have to annotate it. So it's C2, Y2 or B3, Y4 or, you, you know, incredibly complex, archaic way of doing it. And, you know, for John to have to cope with that as well made his coloring all the more miraculous. But the later issues, I know you've got one of the original comic books. I'm actually looking at, you know, the the later trade paperback, which has got the recoloring in it was you know given the technical uh, restrictions of what john was doing his his color is just brilliant and it was great that he later got the chance to clean it up remaster it you know for the editions that are that are now in print and i have even going through this issue for the purposes of this talk i had marveled at how abstract he makes his coloring you know it's not skin is pink and skies are blue it, it, it's his choices are just in, incredible Anyway, carry on, carry on. Just, just critically, like trying to, you know, absorb the story. We had these several, you know, six pages of uh, splashes, these quiet moments, and then you realize that uh, Doctor Manhattan is—they're already there. Like it's, it's from their perspective. They're, they're standing mm -hmm. around, looking around in that three sixty. Yeah. And Doc yeah, Manhattan is pretty far removed from humanity. He's talking about these tachyon things while, mm -hmm. while our girl right there, man is just on the human level they just wanted some indian food to go like all they wanted mm -hmm. was some dinner yeah there's mm -hmm. a great job of of her i don't want to say babbling but a reaction where it's like completely overwhelmed like impossible yeah. to to bring to words anything that would make sense of what she's standing in the middle of really yeah. well expressed and you know they're in separate panels while we're reminded of of a couple together and just how far apart these two are mm. at this point in the story 
I should also point out uh, that first picture, the profile of Laurie, where your thumb is, that actually intentionally mirrors the cover of issue two, where you've got the stone angel looking over the city of the dead. So, yeah, that was just a little echo, which probably most people have completely missed, but uh, it's there for a reason. Reminds me a little bit of uh, issue 11, whenever we see Night Owl and Rorschach's reaction at the end of the issue. And it's like this silence of them just looking like, what have we just heard? It's already happened. Mm-hmm. You know, you see a little bit of that in her expression there, too, of like, you know, she's seeing I, what they heard in that last issue. I, I, I hadn't I hadn't made that connection, but as, as it makes us look all the more clever, I'll take it. <laughs> Dave, Dave, your your drawing style here, the, the proportions of your figures... They mm. feel they feel taller uh, than yeah. than the way that you uh, would usually draw your comics. Uh, longer legs, something like that. Was this was this a deliberate idea? You want to make these characters look more heroic to the regular citizens? Like the, it, it looks like some deliberate stuff is happening. If you look at this compared to Green Lantern or some of the work that comes after. Yeah, I mean, I think in all all honesty, I would like to say that it's sometimes it is just not so good drawing. I think it's, to, it's something to do with the function of the space that I was having to fit the figures into and maybe on a subconscious level squeezing them so that they would fit fit across. There are some instances where I look at the figures and I, I cringe. I think, oh, my God. But on the, on the other hand, uh, yeah, it does give them a certain heroic aspect. Um, so I think that's just, uh, that's just me drawing under pressure. So talking about John Hegan's colors, right, as we roll through here and they decide that they need to go investigate this, where, where's this coming from? And suddenly we have like a colorless panel almost surrounded by a rainbow. What a great effect that is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then you mirror that, that same color once we get to the uh, Antarctic base. For some reason, it was like this issue... When I said, when you see everybody get back together, where, uh, like, I thought less about Charlton characters and way more about the Justice League of America in a lot of ways. I mean, we're in essentially the Fortress of Solitude. You have your your, your Batman there. You know, we'll call mm-hmm. Lori like the Wonder Woman of the thing. But I started thinking way more about just a DC pantheon beyond yes. uh, just Charlton. Yeah, it, it has got that kind of here comes everybody kind of feel you know that t- that t- team up thing and and I, it's one of the few times other than in flashback that we do see them all together in costume i think so it's impressive because of that the, the other thing i was going to point out on the the preceding page with laurie and uh, dr Ma- dr manhattan is the bit of business where she finds the gun uh some people missed missed out on that it, it was a question of we had to show it but not make it blindingly obvious. And I often wonder, some some people knew what was happening. Other people completely missed it because they were looking at all, all the other detail. But that's where she gets the gun from that she's later to um, use. Um, makes perfect sense, man. You, you know, some of it... like I, that, I, I totally missed that. Me, me too. And and I would say that that's actually not helped so well by, by the Higgins color because it's pretty dark there. But, yeah. I mean, there's that gun right there. It makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, center of the panel. And it's neat. Yeah, and... and, and and you can see on this on this the second row of pictures, she's kind of squatting down, and you can't see what her hands are doing. And then in the central picture on the whole page, she's got a hand inside the bag, pushing the gun down down inside it. But uh, 
Yeah, perhaps a little too subtle, but it's subtlety's a, a difficult horse to ride. Dave, one of the one of the things that's that's so fun about this comic is uh, you discover something new on every every read, and mm-hmm. I discovered things uh, on this on you know my initial read for this that that I never saw before, and you're just you're just adding to it. It's it's good. Great. <laughs> good. This feels like uh, a, a real human nature too. Like confronted with this type of horror, it's almost instinctual that she pulls that gun out. Like she doesn't know she's going to go and, and shoot at somebody. It's just like yeah. survival or something, you know, very primal. In fact, um, Dr. Manhattan says something while she's looking at the gun. He says, uh, blah, 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 reassuringly powerful, which I guess is what Laurie must have felt about the gun. That if she had that, she felt reassured and, and powerful. Maybe that's why people like guns in general. I don't know cut to the uh the fortune of solitude and we have a hamstrung rorschach that's chomping at the bit he's doing everything he can to have some restraint because he knows the second he's he's mean to bubastis his master he's going to get torn mm-hmm. to ribbons yes mm-hmm. <laughs> that smile on adrian's face too he's real pleased with himself yeah yeah I, 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 again re- reading alan's script he gave me one of those things things that's impossible to draw but he he suggested that rorschach's fists should be trembling with rage which you know exactly what that means but it's an impossible thing to draw unless you do little little tremble mark you know little um tremble marks which wouldn't look so good probably you didn't do any of that sort of uh, comic book shorthand with speed lines and, and, and things like that in, in, in this comic very much. No, there was a, that was a conscious decision that we wouldn't have speed lines or motion lines or captions come, come to that. Um, I think maybe there might, there, there probably are, I, I can't think of where it is offhand, but there's one where maybe I've got a little line by somebody's head to kind of show shock but by and large we we did our best to avoid those particular you know cliches great emotion on dan's face despite being behind goggles and in in costume uh, always mm-hmm. impressed when you're able to com- communicate that and that's without any real body language you know we're just getting a close-up of a face so in fact i will i will read you i will read you alan's description of that let me let me just see because it's one of these amazing things it's page nine isn't it and it's panel panel one two three four five six panel six yeah it says now another simple head and shoulders shot this time of dan his eyes widen and he has a number of expressions vying for possession of his face ridicule disbelief and above all the terrible uncertainty that, that, do, you, do you think I pulled it off? I don't know. <laughs> I love this. Like uh, listening to the um, the Simpsons commentaries with those Harvard writers, <laughs> like they they will do things like task their animators with uh, drawing an ambivalent hum. <laughs> and, yeah, just go off and go do that. <laughs> but anyway, that that that's how it's done. That's how the, how the pros do it. Dave, so much great uh, body language and facial expressions in here. We're going to see one of the greatest pieces of the uh, Doc Manhattan kind of emoting as uh, his last little bit of humanity is shown in, in a little bit. Part, part of uh, Night Owl's response or, or uh, you know, odd reaction there is not just the horror of what has happened, but also the revelation of, you know, what would you have done if the assassin's bullet, you know, if he hadn't been stopped? And he's like, well, 
I would have caught the bullet. And uh, mm-hmm. and that's part of this expression of like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's so, so self-assured. It makes you sick, doesn't it? And, and, and the beauty of the silent panel is you can linger on that for as long as you want, man. <laughs> All right. We get a little bit of uh, exposition about how the, how the alien works, psychic brains mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, some mm-hmm. interesting stuff there about the amount of information that they're coding into the brain. Uh, really specific language, which, again, seems to make more sense to me in today's world than I read this probably in the late 80s. Uh, feels much more relevant language yeah. Um, today, even. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, he, he is speaking for a comic book villain. He's speaking in big, complicated words, isn't he, really? You know, I, I think his in- intelligence and knowledge comes through. There's another weird thing on that page that I can't actually figure out exactly what I was trying to do now. But if you look at the top row of pictures on page, uh, page 10, um, there's a lot of shadow on uh, um, Adrian's face in the in the third picture, and then you look down at the picture of Rorschach, and it kind of echoes it. I think I was trying to do something, something there about information or something. I, I it's rather lost to me, but I know that I know there was a reason for doing it. Sorry, I'm sounding much too much like 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 an old man that well i did something but i don't know why i did it now but anyway i, <laughs> I did mean it. it's 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 very clear like the, like the same sort of composition and you could infer a lot of things like this might be the second the moment that rorschach like gained true awareness of mm-hmm. of what's going down or whatever yeah I, and i mean there's another interesting thing that that adrian Weiss says because you know he he was behind the pyramid trucking company who we saw right at the beginning he, when he's describing his plan here, he says, no one will know those involved are all dead, killed by killers who killed each other, a lethal pyramid. So he was kind of displaying arrogantly his plan, you know, in plain view. It's one of those great things, man. You see it in the G.I. Joe comics. Arbok Industries is just Cobra spelled backwards, man. <laughs> <laughs> no! You spoiled it. it for me. There's all these little bits, too. Like, I... I I think we might have even passed it in the splashes or it might be forthcoming, but there are like Adrian Veidt sneakers and stuff with like the, the P on yeah. it. Like he's, he's, he's got a whole brand and it's out there in that universe. Yeah. All right. Enter uh, Doc Manhattan and Lurie puts a little halo around her. So that uh, a little insulation with that mm-hmm. costume. Mm-hmm. I, Wonder Woman didn't need that insulation in that, in that, uh, <laughs> in the annual you guys drew. Because she's an Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> this is a nice visual, too, seeing through the, the translucent quality of Dr. Manhattan. Mm. Yeah, it could be handled so many ways. And, and just, Dave, like the, the perfect amount of lines to sell it. Mm. Uh, one, one, one other thing that you mm. might have missed, t- talking about Laurie's uh, aura, protective aura, when uh, when Dr. Manhattan goes, he leaves her outside and he withdraws the aura as well. I'm sure he does it unconsciously, but she's just left to freeze. <laughs> um, and also on page 11, if you look at the wide picture in the middle, you can see that Dr. Manhattan is kind of holding his left hand up. And in this sequence, time and space are being messed with by tachyons. So if you now turn the page turn that page he's in the same place on the page but now he's pushing the door open 
Wow. That's amazing, man. So yeah. he's preemptively kind of gone to open the door, but being slightly messed up by the tachyons. That's that what... is so awesome to see visually represented because we see it in the dialogue repeating, and that's a that's an easy one to catch, you yeah. know. But to do it visually is uh, that's awesome. It's a great use mm -hmm. of that that technique too, you know, like the 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 mole strip in Mad Comics, Harvey Kurtzman, where you see that repeated image. It's so much more on the nose because it's a very bombastic kind of image. You rarely ever see it where it's kind of just a subtle movement. I was looking at the uh, the, the the cat Bubastis because I've I've always kind of liked cats. We you know, growing up, and even now we've we've got cats. Um, but the cat we've got at the moment, we've, we've got two of them, a Maine Coon cats, which are big cats, like they're domestic cats. They're not big cats like lions and tigers, but they're large, large domestic cats. But they've got the pointy ears uh, and the same kind of feel as, as, as Bubastis. So I, I'm not saying they're, they're, they're the greatest cat drawings ever, but I really enjoy drawing Bubastis because, you know, I kind of love cats. And, and I think that sort of comes over. Great page of storytelling here in this panel, and I, I have to imagine that that part of the uh, script had to be pretty detailed because we have Adrian Veidt behind this kind of like lead shield barrier thing with a sign mm -hmm. that says stand behind screen when TF Subtractor is activated. You see mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the, what do you call it, man? The, the area of effect, Bubass is kind of like leading him leading him on as Doc Manhattan is like walking down that whole hall a little bit oblivious to uh to Adrian because of the the tachyon issue yeah we're building to something here you mentioned these uh mirror like panels Ed it's also in the drawing you know this whole fortress has that kind of uh squeaky clean polish uh texture to it and you see it in in several of these panels whether it's character reflections or like the objects in the room reflecting yeah done in ink line like in uh you know modern day you could do all sorts of computer effect to 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 sell the the reader on that but this is this is the pen and ink days how about baby. this for an interesting effect and i wonder if this is just subconscious you know as they walk into this area where uh Veet has set up this trap for Dr. Manhattan. You see like the caution lines, you know, the caution sign. The whole fortress has that caution motif as we, as we mm. see it from the outside there. That's this is, true. This is some stuff I totally sort of make note of for my, for my own work to just sell atmosphere. Like you draw these, you now have wind. Right. You know, <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I mean, looking back at these drawings, and as I say, again, dispassionately and almost uninvolved because of the number of years that have gone by, one of the things I like about them is in these pictures, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of air, there's a lot of depth, which given that many of the pictures are really up close, you're really looking straight in people's faces. It's like, again, it's kind of like breathing out or something, you know, it's, it's, it, it gives a good, good contrast to it. I would also point out that in that bottom panel on page 13, we've sort of, as Laurie walks into the circular tunnel, we've got a little bit of a smiley face echo kind of going on there. Can you see with the icicle and with the dark of her figure and the curve of it all, there's a little bit of a smiley face working itself up there. And, and there's also a butterfly in the snow. Then if you can see that in the in the foreground, there's a little that butterfly that we saw before Veit let the snow in. That's still 
hanging around in the snow. Right. And we will see it later again as oh, well. Oh, yeah, there it is right there. This yeah. is almost a uh, the Mickey Mouse broken. So shots <laughs> yes, fired, you know, uh, cutting promos on, on the future Marvel owners. Uh, I like the attention to detail of having the scooters that Rorschach and Night Owl rode in on, you know, partially covered mm. now in the snow in the foreground there, showing passage of time and how quick this environment is to reclaim that environment. Mm. Dave Gibbons invented the Segway. Yes, that's right. In fact, you know, the Segway has got a comic book connection. You know that, don't you? Dean yes. Kamen, I, I, Jack Kamen's boy. Yeah, yeah, weird, isn't it? Anyway, could have been me. As another digression, he also invented a, uh, a water filter thing designed to uh, filter your pee so that it's drinkable. <laughs> Uh, I think we come on, on onto that a bit later on this issue. The <laughs> yeah. Here we have, man. Uh, Doc Ma Dr. Manhattan walks right into that field. Adrian mm -hmm. turns it on. And like the one piece of empathy you see invite that feels legit because mm -hmm. there's that earlier part where he's like, I feel for everybody. I felt for everybody that I killed. It was necessary. And I didn't quite believe it in his character. Mm-hmm. I could believe that uh, that he uh, is a little sad that Bubastis is gone. He loves his cat. He's he's a rough, tough dude, but he loves his cat. You know, just like me. This is so. Uh, this book. One of the interesting things to me is it's a superhero book. You know, it's usually judged that way. But it's these moments that, like, this is such a human moment, and it's. I, I have cats too, Dave. I love them very much, and I have that same mm -hmm. feeling. And I often catch myself thinking, like. You know, you, you, you care more for the cat than you do this person. And it's and it's it's terrible. Like in my mind, I feel guilty over that. But that's what you see here. Right. Is this pet owner who loves this pet not that worried about Dr. Manhattan or or the millions of people that he's killed in this stunt. But yeah. his pet, his dear pet. Yeah, it, again, it's a very almost selfish kind of love. He, he loves his pet, but he doesn't really care for much anything else. And it's probably for what he gets back from his pet. The Well, you know, it's the companionship, isn't it? It's also, there's a there's a God thing to it also, because this is a one-of-a-kind animal, something something that he created, like like mm -hmm. he's God over this thing. It's, you know, maybe one of his most brilliant inventions, and now he has to snuff out his, his artwork. On this yeah. thread right here, I'm just noticing another another shout out to, to John Higgins. You were talking about some of his use of color, how he doesn't just necessarily color everything straight. We have Caucasian flesh in a shadow illuminated with some light. Same mm -hmm. deal on this page. Lori's a little bit in shadow. We have mm -hmm. a, a, a kind of a, a speed effect with uh, with like some, some pink light on Vite here. We have the gun muzzle blast, so they're all yellow. This is mm -hmm. this is deliberate colorist stuff. It didn't have to look this way, but John Higgins made those decisions. Dave, did you provide any kind of uh, color color guides or notes or anything to John, or uh, just trust him to do his thing? Well, we had a discussion earlier on. I mean, I sort of chose John because I, I knew him a little bit to, to begin with anyway, and I knew he was somebody that I would enjoy working with. And I'd seen the thing that he'd done actually in a 2000 AD annual that I believe was drawn by Steve Dillon and John had colored it. And I was really struck by the color, by what the color added to, to Steve's drawings. And in fact, Steve and John actually ended up working in the same studio together. So they, they knew each other quite well. Um, and I knew that John was a good painter as well. I'd seen science fiction book covers and things he'd done. So I asked him if he was interested in doing this, which he was. 
And the only guidance I gave him was that I, I wanted it to look kind of unlike a regular American comic book. And a lot of the European albums that we were looking at in those days, back in the early 80s, we all sort of discovered European albums. They would go much more for the, the secondary palette, you know, the purples and the greens and the oranges and everything. And John got that and said, yeah, you know, that, that would give him something to sort of base his approach on. And I also gave him coloured drawings of the individual costumes, but, you know, just as reference, really. Um, and um, every time he coloured an issue, he would bring it round to my house and show me the Xeroxes that he coloured in with Dr. Martin's intense coloured dyes. And I would recall in horror, I'd go, no, John, you can't. That's much too bright. Oh, no, you can't put green on that or you can't use blue there. And he would always talk me down. He would always have a good logical reason for doing it. He'd explain how it had to be this color because he'd already used that color. And he wanted to, you know, almost in a very scientific way. Um, and he could always justify all his color choices. So after two or three issues of me being aghast at, at what he'd done, I just let him do do whatever he wanted on it. And there the, are the, the odd things that stick in my mind, like the, the Rorschach issue, where it's the, the Rorschach cards. He plays around with the palette there, where it starts off very sunny and bright and warm. And by the time you get to the last page, it's just muted greys and blues. And, and it does a wonderful job of, you know, because we talked about the, well, there's the literary quality of what, Alan wrote and the wonderfulness, the poetry of his prose. There's the kind of sharply defined accuracy and realization of what, what I've done with my particular skill. But what John's coloring does is add a layer of emotion on top of that. You know, color gives you mood and emotion and again, a kind of visual poetry. And that's why what he did was so much more than just Colouring Superman's shirt blue all the time, you know, um, and he and and it, the 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 other thing I was really pleased about was when DC came to do the recolouring when we did the digital colouring, that they actually got John on a royalty after that. So all the big printings of Watchmen, John got a decent royalty on, um, which I think he thoroughly deserved. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And just one other colour note with uh, John. Uh, sometimes the the best choice for a colorist in a moment, man, is to put almost no color at all, and that feels very bright. Yeah, man, mm -hmm. it, it pops so much off of this page and off of what we've seen so far. I wanted to point out when when Vet is you know catching this bullet or doing his move, that is one of those comic effects, you know, like the Deluca Deluca effect, right? Yeah. yeah. The repeating of the image in, in a panel, um, one of the rare instances of using a uh, a very comic book style effect. Yeah. New descending a staircase, isn't it, by Marcel Duchamp? That's yes. it, man. And he's and he's going. You know, this is a guy like you know all those rich dudes that will do their Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's going down with Jeet Kune Do because that is the high uh, that Bruce <laughs> Bruce Lee shouts. You know, one more note on the color here is you're having your your face-offs between a purple and orange. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your your uh, complementary colors there as those two characters seem strongly yeah. identified by color. But of course they do also say, and I, you're absolutely right when you say there are no weak colors in there. You know, he's not not scared of the colors. I read somewhere, and I believe it's true, that you can judge a colorist by their grays. And what really makes this work is not only the bold purples and yellows, 
but exactly the tones that he's used for the background, those very muted, cool colours. So uh, yeah, it's it's a it's, it is a masterclass in how to how to use colour in a comic book. I think more of that subtle storytelling. We see we see Vite on the ground. We mm -hmm. see uh, it's so smart in terms of storytelling. We see this this hand. He's 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 holding a wound. He got shot in the chest, man. You see him holding mm -hmm. that, but that other hand is bloody, and that hand is clutched. And you know, remember this panel before you turn the page, because we're gonna come back to what what it looks like he's trying to do in that panel. Hit that mm -hmm. high, yeah, throw gimmick. that kick. <laughs> it's so good, man. Like when he opens that the, the aha moment, and then she catches it to the to the rib piece. The theory being, and I speak to you now with with, with another one of my hats, and I've I've trained Tai Chi for the past thirty something years. And if, if you're good enough, nobody can ever put any weight on you because your hand is moving in a way and in a velocity, which means that they, they never can actually touch you. They can never put more than four ounces of pressure on you. And the theory here is that Veidt is such a skilled martial artist that he can match the trajectory and the speed of a bullet so that when it hits his hand, they're traveling at the same speed and then he just decelerates his hand and that takes all the kinetic energy out of it. I, w I would say, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and look at her, man. She's doubled over. Ugh. But then it's just business as usual and no respect for Night Owl and Rorschach. She walks by him. He's mm -hmm. a bad, this is a bad man. <laughs> yes, I love indeed. this sequence too. And, you know, it's another one of these instances of we're mirroring this, this these pages, you know, as, as he's destroyed and then comes back. Dr. Manhattan. And you can almost hear that. <laughs> you know, Dr. Manhattan, he doesn't raise his voice until now. That's right. This reminds me a little bit of the first time we see Dr. Manhattan. It's in a vertical, a tall vertical panel, probably about the size of those feet. If you were to draw him yeah, three tiers high, and even in like mm -hmm. an installation where you're seeing this kind of uh, monitors and stuff that he's working on in that first scene. Yeah, there's, there's, there's also um, a thing that happens here that happens in that first appearance, that page way back in, in issue one, where he, we're actually showing Dr. Manhattan shrinking. And it's a weird thing to have to draw. It kind of messes with your perspective and your spatial dynamics on it. But here he does shrink down um, again. And I think it's, I think it probably works. Oh, absolutely, works. absolutely. And, and man, just, just uh just drawing that figure time and time again dave you you either you can't hide like you've chosen to draw in a style where you can't hide uh the fact that like say you don't know how to draw a proper clavicle or something mm -hmm. every uh every muscle and bone is accounted for in correct fashion like you could learn how to draw that achilles tendon by looking at these images and it certainly helped provide some some perspective on how to draw the figure in an age where one I was a little kid and it was I didn't even know what to ask for to try to figure out how to draw human beings mm -hmm. and two the stuff that I was uh, gravitating toward at that time before discovering Watchmen is like Rob Liefeld comics and Todd McFarlane comics and things where I'm just drawing the the it looks like a leg on a dude's <laughs> where a dude's arm is supposed to be and then when yeah. you see uh, the symmetry of the of the of the character, like when you're drawn, um, Doctor Manhattan, just just a naked, you know, Ventruvian man or whatever. 
that I mean, it's it's incredible figure drawing. I think the thing I was going for, well, not I think, I know what the effect I was going for there is that Dr. Manhattan is faintly translucent. So you you can't actually cast a shadow on him and no, nowhere has he got anything that go that is completely in shadow. So it's a bit like one of those, I don't know if you get the, the, the reference, uh, Lalique glassware, that kind of frosted glass that they sometimes have as a light. That's how I saw him being, that it's just, as his body, as the planes of his body turn away from you, they get a bit darker. And when they're facing towards you, they're full on bright. So that's why I use that particular kind of hatching, just to suggest that turning of the form with it, the surface going away from you and not sending as much light. Anyway, that, that makes so that, much sense because you do not see that on other characters. Right. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly hard to draw, at least for me, are monitors in a background of a panel. <laughs> like showing things on a monitor for some reason is my worst panel to have to draw. Uh, but it's such a dramatic one with the lighting here. And in contrast to what you're describing with Dr. Manhattan having like a glow, a little bit of a glow to him, you see the mm -hmm. opposite and what a figure looks like that isn't emitting any light. Uh, Uncle Dave's going to show off too, because he's going to give you monitors in perspective and, <laughs> have, and have that, that Richard Nixon head perfectly skewed in perspective. Yeah, of, of course, with computer graphics nowadays, that would be so simple to draw. So I just draw the whole thing square on and just distort it, you know. But yeah, that's all mapped out by, by hand. Hours and hours of work doing that. That to me is an amazing figure pose because you mm -hmm. have the perspective there in his arms while still mm -hmm. throwing up that, that victory sign. And and it is at 5 to 12. You, you realize that his arms are like the arms of a clock. And oh, my goodness. Hands of a clock. Wow. And and in between his two hands is indeed the Gordian knot. This is a painting of Alexander the Great severing the Gordian knot. I believe I based it on a painting, or it might not be a full painting, it might be a sketch by a French artist called um, David, D-A-V-I-D-E, and he drew or painted this sequence where Alexander just cuts the knot and solves the problem. So there's a lot of symbolism going on there. That 12-5 thing is remarkable because I see the perspective of the figure drawing and it actually is like the shorter arm in perspective is the hour. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to contemplate such a thing. And there's your, there's your clock. Incredible. Uh, shouting, I did it. It's almost like, like boy genius or something, like, like an infantile <laughs> uh, exclamation. I did it. He's looking for praise, man, but... You know what? I see this to me is not so much his praise or even worrying about anybody else in the room at that point, because you're, you're reading this idea like his, his scheme to make peace or whatever. It's happened. And this is months, years in the planning, the teleporting of that thing, the creating like an organic brain matter so that it's believable as some sort of alien life force. So many pieces that could go wrong, even for the world's smartest man. Relief. This is this is Dave Gibbons <laughs> page finishing 32. up page thirty-two of issue yeah. twelve. Watchman, I did it. <laughs> yeah, and and of course it's very self-centered as well. It's typical of Vi. I did it. Look at me. I'm the winner. End of war was one of the last uh, phrases on that TV before he shouted his victory. Mm hmm. Right. That's now, true. Now we have the back and forth. Well, yeah, you did it. But now we can't talk about it. You can't celebrate your victory. They mentioned uh, the guy, like the guy who the idea of Pyrrhic victory is 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 based on. I forget P 
Papyrus or something like that. He's mm. mentioned in here somewhere. So it's like, yeah, you did it. Can't talk about it, nor can we. Because if we divulge mm. this information, uh, everything goes back to the way it was at, at best. Mm -hmm. And Rorschach is having none of it. Right. He ain't playing that game. Joking, of course. <laughs> yeah. Never and compromise. The, and the other thing there about what Rorschach says, and I noticed when I reread this, that in that final panel on, on page 20, Rorschach says never compromise. And there should logically be a balloon tail going towards the door or through the doorway. But it's actually in Alan's script saying it's a tailless balloon. And I think that has a very subtle but quite interesting effect. It's like it's just left hanging there. It's like the ghost of what Rorschach... It's the last thing Rorschach says to anybody apart from Dr. Manhattan. And it's like, never compromise. It's just left there. Just the idea. I think mm. uh, I saw... Where was it? Um... It might have been the Jonathan Ross uh, special about um, Steve Ditko. I saw Alan Moore on something talk about Steve Ditko uh, being asked about Rorschach and its relation to uh, the question. And mm -hmm. Steve Ditko said something. This is Alan Moore stating uh, that Steve Ditko said, yeah, Rorschach is like, uh, the question or Mr. A, except he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. How about this Higgins color right here? Wild. I've, I've been staring at that since you opened the spread. It's, it's like double it's... lighting, light coming from two different areas. So the shadow is pure green. Well, that's very strange, actually. I don't know if that might actually be an error because in the recolored version, Ah. Can you see it? Yeah. yeah. In the recolored version, it's not. It's quite a muted color. There's a lot that's different because look at the uh, Ozymandias on the third panel of uh, that page twenty. Like the colors are way more subtle and and uh, sub subdued compared to what Higgins laid down here initially. Yeah, it's it's weird. It, I'm, I'm sure if John had intended that, he would have carried it through into the recolored version. So. I suspect that that is just, they've dropped one of the plates, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a real harsh line too. Right. Mm. Yeah. It is very square. This is a good example, Dave. You were talking about like the spaces that you've, that you've drawn in this uh, comic, in this series. I think this page, this spread going from like everybody together and reflecting and even mm. the world on these monitors behind them to like, we need to go off and like, you know, meditate, yeah. think about this, do something coping. And, and you go from this really busy, chaotic moment to like space. It's a quiet well, of transition. It's, it's almost like, like a Zen thing, isn't it? Draw emptiness. Right. Yeah. That's, that's how you draw emptiness by having everything else crammed. And then when it isn't crammed, it's empty. <laughs> it, it makes sense to me emotionally reading this. And, and even that, if you turn the page and we keep following them, because it just feels like, how do you process this as a human? And it feels mm. like that's what we're seeing here of, you know, it's impossible. It's, it's impossible in a way. And, and it's awkward a little bit with these characters as they're trying to form words and, you know, come back together in some way. Uh, I think that's really captured well. This, this particular spread, there's one panel in it that always makes me laugh. And just briefly, you know, as I said, we we were much uh, um, 
a kind of celebrated up at DC Comics and everybody would come and pester the editor to see if the latest issue of Watchmen, the art was in for the latest issue of Watchmen yet. And there was a, an inker called Al Gordon um, and he was a particular pest. He was always asking, is the next Watchman? Can I come in and, and have a look at it? And Mike Carlin, who's got a fantastic sense of humour, he actually, when he got the got to see the artwork for this last issue, did a doctored up copy that he sent a Xerox of to Al Gordon, where he, he'd done things like pull it through the Xerox machine really quickly so it was all blurred and distorted, change word balloons and everything. But this one in particular, the, the, the central image on page uh, 22, where Laurie's taking Dan's goggles off, here, here, you know, she says, I want to see you and taste you and smell you just because I can. What is that, Dan? What's that you smell of? And he says, nostalgia, which is, you know, the men's aftershave, women's perfume or whatever. In the doctor version that Mike Carlin did, she says, what is that, Dan? This is Night Owl she's talking to. What is that, Dan? What is that you smell of? And Dan says, owl shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then just to skip forward a couple of pages, we can, we can come, if, if you go forward to page, page 25, where the guy's walking across the swimming pool, He's actually, in the version that Mike did, he's actually peeing as he walks across the swimming <laughs> pool. So there you are. Mike Carlin spoils it for me, and I've spoiled it for everybody else. That's so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> like, like uh, sometimes, you know, it's, 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 it's right there. Mm. We, we, we like to call the, the classic Alan Moore transition uh, images out whenever we see a, a good one. And of course, uh, this is also a motif throughout the comic where you have the couple in, in embrace and then dissolve into Rorschach uh, symbol like on, on, his, uh, on his face there. Mm -hmm. Heads out, man, to go get his Segway. And you still see that butterfly that you called out earlier. Chekhov's yep. butterfly. You don't introduce it <laughs> earlier in the piece if you don't uh, have some payoff. And that's uh, right. We're going to have some butterfly effect with Doc Manhattan size twelve stepping on that <laughs> poor bastard. <laughs> no yeah. dignity in that poor butterfly, man. <laughs> it's only a butterfly. Yeah, that's what they said in that Ray Bradbury story. And then what happened? Oh, that—that's right. <laughs> yes. In the prehistoric time traveling big game. Gotcha. <laughs> I about that. Rorschach isn't budging. No. He's not, and I think if you just let him go off in the uh, Antarctic wild on that scooter, we're never going to see or hear from him again. Or if you do, <laughs> not like, his best plan. There is a part of uh, you hear about it from those CIA guys that that get de deactivated and do interviews, where uh, a big part of um, sort of denouncing alien abduction claims and stuff like that is you consider the source and make a judgment call let them talk let them tell everybody man right. go go on larry king you crazy archie looking bastard <laughs> and let's see if uh, humanity believes <laughs> the things that you're going to be telling the public yeah you go do that if you're yeah, the yeah. spokesman for uh, this this idea <laughs> for the truth yeah 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 like yeah. You, go go on man yeah. and, and, there's, and there's also of course the sheer practical difficulties of him ever getting back to New York because he's he's on his own. He really doesn't have to fly that owl shit. The thing's iced up. It's probably out of fuel or whatever. It's a, a fool's errand anyway. He's, he's never going to get there, really. 
But obviously, Doctor Manhattan isn't going to take that chance. He's 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 one of those guys. I I know these relentless people, and I've heard stories of such relentless people that like they will not stop if they are not mm -hmm. stopped. Mm -hmm. There's no choice. Fair enough. I think you guys did drop the ball here uh, when you could have done a just do it. Would have been really nice. <laughs> I, I would have loved that. That is a Nike uh, reference. If if. Uh... Uh, all right. Although what what I would point out, you you mentioned earlier on where for the first time Doctor Manhattan raises his voice. This is the only time that Rorschach raises his voice. Yeah, you know it's the um yeah, yeah. That's a good call. The other note that I'll have here, a little bit more serious, is you know that's a very famous thing for the the uh, a man who was executed. I think it was the last execution in Utah by firing squad, and famously his his last words were were do it. Mm. Uh, and maybe just do it. I'm not sure about the just part, but it feels like, mm. I mean, this is exactly pretty famous last words of, you know, the last man killed in America by firing squad. Does this call back also to to young Walter Kovacs when he gets the, the ice cream on the head and he puts a cigarette out on the kid's eye? Like, like, uh, we, yes, we, we've seen that panel of Walter Kovacs doing doing some stuff. Yeah, earlier, and, and, and I think also much like I guess the guy you're talking about with the firing squad. Rorschach knows what's going to happen. He knows there's no escape, but there's no point in even talking or you just do it, you know, because we know you're going to do it and nothing's going to change your mind. So it's Rorschach, you know, even in the case of his own death, being absolutely clear, you know. I wonder if it's re his recognition, too, that he does not exist in a utopian society. His character has no mm. place in that utopia. Right. Yeah, sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Where, where does this guy fit in if, if everything's hunky-dory? What's what's the purpose? Yeah, yeah. Um, the last panel on that page, we do see the the smiley face in the end of the circular tunnel again, with the red smoke, the red mist going across it, like the blood did on the smiley face. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing that motif, and and uh, once again that Higgins color, where he's got these mm. like outer edges of the gore with mm -hmm. uh, the more dissolved interior part and it's like a bloody mist and then you have the dr manhattan mist coming up but also once again those layers of depth that we we're talking about in those early mm -hmm. uh splash pages here's here's the death mist of rorschach you have one yeah. piece of wind coming in front of the smoke one piece of uh wind going behind it and it just we're working in a 2d medium here you got to do what you can to try to Give us some foreground, middle ground, and background. And Dave, you always rise to that occasion here. Look at this one. Oh, thanks. Manhattan, I, uh, sadistic. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. No, I'm, I, sh I should also po point out that um, Rorschach's hat comes flying off in panel two on that left-hand page. And then he's got the mask in his hand. But the mask ends up, if you look on the very bottom pan on the bottom picture, over towards the left near that bush, there's a circular, it's a thing that looks like a fried egg. It's just a flat thing with a with a flat black blob. Yep, exactly. And that's his mask when he's not wearing it. It's lost all the heat information. It's, well, perhaps it's even frozen. And it's just a circular block on a on a piece of, uh, piece of latex. That level of thought, man. It is interesting to me that Manhattan, like, kind of violently obliterates him because we've seen Manhattan do all sorts of stuff. He could have teleported into mm. the bottom of the Pacific Ocean or Mars if he wanted to, but like mm. he obliterate like explodes him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Look at the dad bod on Daniel Dryberg, man. <laughs> he, this guy hasn't been practicing Tai Chi for 30 years. <laughs> what do you know? You haven't seen me standing up. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the piece, man. The, the, the little bit of recognition with uh, Do Dr. Manhattan, that little smile, like his last piece of humanity he's he's okay with Lori. he he knows she's in good hands or something do you by any chance have this script part talking about this yeah, i do and in fact it, it was a thing that really struck me and i'm just scrolling my way towards it what what alan put as his description for that here we go 22 23 what's this place 25 yeah panel one two three four five panel five 25 it says, uh, right, page 25, panel five. Now a single width shot, looking up slightly at a head and shoulders shot of John, who is looking down at us. He has a faint but fondly paternal smile as he silently and understatedly bestows his blessing upon their relationship. I tried to draw that. I mean, I, I had a good go, but that's poetry, isn't it? Mission accomplished. I swear to God, I could cry right now. Like just <laughs> making this video, like this is ridiculous to me. This is so cool. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much for, for providing all this insight and sharing these little snippets from the script. Like, sure. Oh, I'm glad I have my sunglasses on. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to start me off, Ed. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, this part, super iconic to me, man, where he just walks up the frickin' wall like a boss <laughs> and, and then just like writes himself up. He's not bound by physics. <laughs> Shall I just read you the panel this description for one of these? Because how I made sense of this, this is page 26, panel five, don't know where, the, where that is. Yeah, it says... The room above, which is a cathedral-like dome containing Veidt's orrery. In this panel, the wall of the orrery's enclosure rises on the left of the picture with the floor running along the bottom. In the foreground, entering from the right of panel, since we are on our own eye level and plane now, we see John's lower legs. The leading one is already stepping onto the wall to the left. The other one's still coming through the floor as if insubstantial. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just like like kind of describing the, the fourth dimension or something, you know. Um, but I think we kind of pulled it, pulled it off. And what's interesting is we did a similar thing with that Superman annual that we did, that, as I mentioned, we were working on while we were doing the de design of Watchmen. And the Superman annual we did was set in Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And it was a similar kind of thing that we knew where all the different bits of it were. We had a, a plan and a diagram, and we could sort of articulate that space and make it very real. And I think we get a similar effect here that you're looking at something from all, all dimensions and it becomes three dimensionally believable. There's MC Escher in it. Yeah. Um, this sums up so much of what I think of that makes great storytelling because by itself, he's just walking on the floor until you start looking and realize that he's actually walking up the wall right. towards us. It's, it's, it's seeing something that you've seen a million times, but seeing it in it from a unique perspective. Dave, mm -hmm. whenever you guys were designing this this comic, did the idea of of uh, magical realism specifically ever ever get brought up while constructing the story? The idea that there's you know this is the quote unquote real world, but we're going to inject one piece of science mm. fiction. There's a, it's a South American literary tradition as yeah. as I know it. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose to a degree, that's what the whole thing is, really. I mean, the premise of it is, well, in most superhero comics, in, in all the Superman comics, the fact that there is Superman in the world makes no difference to the way people live their everyday lives. It's indistinguishable from this, this reality. But we reasoned, and I know it was there in Alan's very early notes, that if there was a Superman in the world, if there was a Dr. Manhattan, the whole world would change. Everything would be different. Clearly, politics, which is what we're going into here, we're trying to avert a nuclear war, but even down to things like what would be the point of being an Olympic athlete when there was somebody who could do what you do 100 times quicker or better or faultlessly, you know, it would... And people wouldn't necessarily like that. And as and as we know, even with very good things like vaccines, for instance, you know, some people just see a dark and awful side in it. So with a, a hero who had superpowers, even if he was for good, as Superman has always been, in reality, there would be a lot of suspicion and a lot of shade being thrown on him. So I think in a way, Watchmen is a magic realism book. And it's OK, let's take the world and then say that in 1952 or whatever it was, there was a Superman and this is what then happened. That's the point at which it diverges. Because all the messing around in the 40s with the Minutemen, it was essentially just guys in Halloween costumes running about, you know, being stupid. And But it was at the point at which, um, we're not stupid, but, you know, uh, um, and, uh, but it was at the, the point at which our reality changed with the arrival of Dr. Manhattan that's when we got into a different universe. So, yeah, so I think there is that kind of reference or awareness of uh, magic realism, yeah. When we have this little solar system thing, this little mm -hmm. globe, I'm feeling Ditko. I'm, I'm thinking of Steve Ditko. When you know I what I, I, I did <laughs> wonder, is that based on a real object? Is that something that you referenced or is that made up? It, it's kind of made up. I mean, an orrery is a clockwork device for mimicking the mo movement of celestial bodies. And so you get these kind of, it, it, it hasn't necessarily got a, a glass globe around it, but it will have sort of arcs of metal that show the path, the perceived path of the constellations and the orbits of the planets and the moons that r rotate around them. And they are quite wonderful and beautiful things. I mean, obviously, they're crude and they're in, inaccurate by modern day standards, but it was the kind of thing that a rich person would have in their house as an amusement, you know, the, the equivalent of a, I, I, I don't know, an, an HD TV or, or, or something like that, you know, that, that, that they would show you the movement of the planets. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I designed this, but I do get the reference. I never really got it before. It's like that window in, in Doctor Strange's Greenwich Village apartment, isn't it? The, the, the sky thing. So, yeah, yeah. Again, you know, I, mean, I think when you look at Watchmen, Ditko's everywhere, really. Yeah, that's a good pull, Ed. Nice call back to, to the Charlton stuff. Makes perfect sense when you say it. It's not something I picked up on the reading, but it, it looks so Ditko-esque. What we're looking at here on page 27, uh, we're looking at an Adrian Vite for who the very first time in the entire comic is unsure of himself, man. Dr. Manhattan did that to him. Yeah, you're the smartest man on earth, but I'm a god. And in the end, yeah. uh, nothing ever ends. John, what do you mean? What 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 do you mean? And he's just left standing there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he says, uh, more towards the background and to the right of the panel, we see Veidt standing with his back slightly turned to the orrery, but looking back over his shoulder at it. 
He looks over his shoulder thoughtfully, as if wondering whether it might suddenly pounce on him from behind. On his half-shadowed face, we see the first fatal shadow of subtle doubt upon those noble, confident features. In the foreground, the clockwork world spin. Isn't that brilliant? It's amazing. And I mean, what you did with it, it like, you know, it's so much of it is in the eyebrows, uh, We like, mm. to, 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 to sell that to sell that emotion you know one of the shows that we like to watch a lot is called man ben uh dave like i don't know if you know it it's it's a uh, the japanese cartoonists uh it's a it's an nhk uh tv show uh mm -hmm. cartoonist named naoki urasawa who's one of the big the big dog the tezuka of modern day in japan goes to different studios of artists they put cameras all through the studio for about four or five days capture a big package of film and then they uh, revisit one another with this package of film. They watch the film and they just talk about it like it's football plays from last mm. week's game or something. And mm. uh, every single one of them talks so much about uh, really fetishizing the eyes of their characters to like get the emotions across, like the importance of the eyebrows and the furrowing of the brows, uh, the expressiveness of the eyebrows. And uh, in this issue alone, there are so many great... Uh, sort of facial expressions throughout this yeah. thing to, to real and, and subtle ones you could do happy you could do angry but but uh dr manhattan here even is a is a subtle facial yeah. expression that is not easy to i mean do. my memory of drawing pictures like that because the actual figures in in these drawings are really quite small you know even on the larger art board and it was a bit like kind of micro surgery going in with a very fine pen and of course, you don't always hit it because it's, which is where my trusty friendly electric eraser would come in. So it was, it was like, draw it. Oh, shit. <laughs> draw it again. Oh, shit. Draw it again. Yeah, got it. You know, or nearly got it. Or it's not going to get any better than that. You know, <laughs> That electric eraser, man, uh, for, for ink, it's this like super hard. I don't have a, the, the, the eraser, like the ink eraser one, but it's this gray hard thing and i feel like it starts to destroy the integrity of the page you could probably only get one or two before you gotta patch it i imagine oh sure yeah yeah you you have to be quite gentle with it but if you do it quite gently and don't try and get rid of it all at once but just work on it slowly you do end up with a surface which is perfectly smooth and, and takes the ink very well i think i don't know if it was the last time i was on here but i shared a studio with mick mcmahon and i made the mistake of introducing him to the electric eraser and he was going through a period where he was trying to letter his own comics. And he, he actually, on one balloon, went right through the paper. You know, he actually <laughs> drilled a hole right, right, right through the paper. So it's a handy thing to have, but it's a bit like, you know, the difference that having undo on a computer makes to doing computer art. There's something about I can't make a mistake that makes you really concentrate. So I would fall back on the electric eraser, but I'd try and get it right first time. All right, man, we have our uh, our epilogue section of, of Watchmen. Okay. The word happy here. Is this a uh, Fantastic Four lettering? Uh, it looks it, doesn't it? It feels like an Easter egg in there. No, but but yes, I'll, I'll uh, as an example of my genius, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Sally Jupiter, man, is, is bringing in a couple of... Uh, fair-haired uh, people we've not seen before, but I recognize this body. <laughs> ah. I'd recognize this Dan Dryberg body, man. And that little uh, that little beauty mark 
on our girl. Mm-hmm. There's no mistaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chekhov's Tijuana Bible. You you don't introduce <laughs> the Tijuana Bible in Act One if if that doesn't pay off in no. Act Three. So we have Sally yeah. Jupiter hooking up Dryberg with his copy, where he also has to admit that he he's he's had a copy or two in his day. It's a valuable yeah. it's a valuable collector's item. Love how <laughs> how well he hits it off with uh, with with uh, Laurie's mother. Just as oh a yeah, fan. And, and 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 how she, she she's a game old girl. She's flirting away with him, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's such a good character piece because I mean he you know he hangs out with Hollis Mason. Uh, you know the the he's the senpai kohai man tell tell me some stories uncle dave gibbons tell us some stories man like we identify we identify with this fella well i will i will tell you another quick story now which is you you notice they're talking about the the outer limits the the guy on the tv is saying and now and now more christmas excitement with tonight's return visit to the outer limits well somebody point pointed out to us that the basic plot of watchman you know had been done in an outer limits a segment called the architects of fear i mean it isn't an original idea to unite against the common enemy which is basically what fight's trying to do to get the us and russia to you know to join forces against the fifth dimension but um we thought as we we knew people would point it out to us and we just wanted to show that yeah we kind of know that we do know there is this story which is kind of from a from a similar route and indeed, that's the reason why in the credits at the front of the collected book, uh, a guy called Mike Lake gets a credit because he was one of the co-owners of Titan Books and Forbidden Planet in the UK. And he found us a copy of the Outer Limits book that, that sort of had the synopses of all the, um, of, of all the Outer Limits shows in it. So that's why he gets a, a mention in the front. Neil Gaiman gets a mention as well because he actually helped unearth a lot of the quotes, which are the the individual issue titles and t- story titles. Pat Mills gave us a great quote about John F. Kennedy talking about the Watchmen on the on the walls of the of, of the world. And who else got a credit? Let me just have a look, just to complete it. Joe Orlando, because Joe Orlando drew that one page of Tales of the Black Freighter that we used in one of the backup sections. So, yeah, so just because Mike Lake was the first to pull out his his copy of The Outer Limits, he got to have a credit on the front of Watchmen. So he did pretty well for himself. Um, you know what, Dave? We were, we've been go using the issues uh, to, to do our little recaps and deconstructions. And uh, very often in the final pages of the issues, there would be just like a black blot where the quote would be, in the collected versions, but I'm guessing that uh, DC Legal just didn't didn't get clearance for these quotes or something whenever the issues came out. Um, that would probably be a misprint because I think they all have got quotes. Although somewhere um, Alan makes makes mention of um, Island Records, who were being really difficult with letting us letting us use this quote that that rounds out the whole thing. Uh, the John Cale thing, where it's, it would be a stronger world, a stronger loving world to to die in. They, I forget the exact figures, but they were holding out for tens of thousands of dollars just to use that line of the song. Whereas we'd use quotes at the very beginning, in particular from Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan's organisation were absolute sweethearts about it. They, uh, about it. they said, 
thanks for letting us know. We'd be very pleased if you used our quotes, but we will charge you, you know, an administrative fee of, of, of whatever it was. And it was just John Cale and Island Records who were really, really awkward about it. So I think you might, I never thought of this. I thought it was a misprint, but you may well be right that they blacked it out until they got the rights to use them. And I think by the time they came to do a trade paperback, they knew there was going to be enough money in it for DC to make it worthwhile paying out a few thousand dollars to use a line. Yeah. Here's our complicated ending with uh, Sally Jupiter, giving the mm -hmm. comedian a kiss, man. Life is complicated. It's a, it's a strange thing. I mean, I mean, I think we called it just about right, but you know, this this was not not a nice guy. But I I I, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a bit of a moral maze. I I, I think, but I think it, it rings true to me. I think given the character we'd established for Sally Jupiter, it sort of rings true. And uh, what do you say, man? The the, the coup de gras. No more uh, banners and stuff for nostalgia. We're approaching mm -hmm. millennium. Mm -hmm. I, I I had to use my electric er eraser on that big panel where the, we've got the big millennium poster because Alan in his script spelt millennium with only one N. And of course, being a slavish artist, I copied that. And then I had to re redo that, that, that whole logo on there. But that was, that was fair use of the electric eraser, I think. What a headache to do that re-lettering and remove all, all that stuff. Yeah, but you never know. The uh... and of course, and of course, we see now that on that intersection, there is no newsstand. There is just a robotic newspaper dispenser, and there's a new design electric charger. It looks a bit like one of those Apple ear pods, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, and and a flash symbol on it. it looks very modern. Yeah, double R to run in '88. We know who that is. We do indeed. And then, oh, here, here are the sneakers with the V on it. Mm -hmm. Adrian Veidt's footprint is everywhere. Mm -hmm. No pun intended. You see, watch <laughs> the Watchman, or who watches the Watchman has been replaced with, with Watch the Skies, right? Our, our, our new threat now being aliens. Yep, yep. And uh, Don't look up. Don't look up. Our friends, the Russians now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Joining oh, oh yeah, and 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 there's, and there's another detail there where we see the guy with his Vite uh, trainers uh, actually walking along. There's a there's a comic which is Tales from the Morgue, because we kind of reckoned that pirate comics were 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 old now. So, given all this horror that had happened in New York City, there was a big appetite for gory, you know, horror type type material. So now, uh, Tales of the Black Freighter was Tales from the Morgue. And if it was an EC comic, they'd carry on the same numbering. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Yeah. Man, a place like Pioneer Publishing Incorporated, uh, you know, the conspiracy paper must mm -hmm. flourish <laughs> in a time where an alien just shows up at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Yeah. But we still have the guys from working the editorial staff. <laughs> 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 That's right, and, and they and they fit fit right in there as well. There's there's also the thing I noticed with Pioneer Press. They've got the kind of backward, you know, the P and the backward P, which was the kind of thing we had earlier with Rorschach, the the, the Rum Runner Club, with the two R's that were back to front and made a skull, and the two P's here kind of do that as well, and also the R's on Burger and Borscht. One of those is reversed to to be like a russian r so 
there's little ripples still going on even when we get to the penultimate page yeah that's incredible and 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 and, and the ending man an ending as good as the ending of the last scene in Sopranos, as far as I'm concerned, because we're going to leave a little bit up to you. You know, like readers don't like that. Like, like the standard audience member doesn't like that kind of thing whenever they're they're asked to make a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, they, they that a lot of people really want stuff spelled out for them. And, yeah. Uh, the fact that you guys have the balls to uh, allow us to, to leave us with that hand going through the slush pile he's going to grab something is he going to grab that rorschach journal it's up yeah. to you yeah yeah no i i i love that note of ambiguity and it keeps the ball still in play and again it, it is like nothing ends nothing ever ends adrian right. it's still there it's still got possibility it's still like Schrodinger's cat, you know, it's not alive or dead, but it's some state in between. So to me, I, I find that com- completely satisfying. And I was also in- interested to, not, to to see when I looked at the script for this, that, that I'd actually done something that I had never done it anywhere else in the book. And I changed the pos- position of the balloons around, that I'd moved a balloon into a different panel and moved all the balloons around. I think I just did it because it worked better with the disposition of the characters. Um, but I was amazed to find that I'd had the temerity to do that. I'd obviously asked Alan about it, but normally I would not do anything at all to Alan's copy because truthfully, there's nothing much you could do to improve it, you know? Dave, could you, uh, just just for um, posterity, since we have you here and you have the script and everything, could could you could you read us the description of the very last panel? The very last panel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just like any 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 other panel, to be honest with you. But I will will read it out because it's it's interesting. It says, uh, "Wide panel closing in on the detail from the last panel. All we see now is Seymour's motionless hand on the left, poised in mid movement, heading towards the crank file with fingers open to take something, but we are unable to tell what." Filling the background is the giant smiley face on his T-shirt. The ketchup splashes across the right eye over on the left. The hand is frozen. That's it. God, Godfrey Off says, I leave it entirely in your hands. And the quote in the box is, well, actually, Alan had it is, and it will be a stronger world, a strong and loving world to die in. John Cale, Santis from Music for a New Society. So... That was that, and and the script for this issue ran to fifty three pages of typescript, twenty for thirty two pages of comics. So, a little um, a little closed mouth given to the way that Alan no- normally works. Some of the scripts are one hundred and twenty pages long, or something like that. <laughs> Did you digitize so then, these and, and create a PDF for yourself or something? Yeah, well, I hung on to the script because I think at some point. It, it's going to be quite a valuable artifact. Not that I want to benefit from that, but I do think it's the sort of thing that belongs in a museum or a library or something like like that. Because, And, of course, it's the part of comics creation that people really don't see. I mean, there's so much information in there that, that the artist needs to draw it, but there's also the tone of it and the conversations going on, on with the artist. And normally these are only seen by the editor and the artist and never seen again so i think it's a valuable thing so 
I did keep every single one of the scripts and I've still got them. And I also paid some money to have them professionally scanned. So I've got good high resolution, full color copies of everything. And I've also got an OCR, you know, character recognition version of it. Um, but I'm just, just keeping them safe uh, for posterity, really. That's so smart. So it's, sorry? I, said, I just said that's so smart. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, they probably are the only copies because the DC editorial copies, I'm sure, were just thrown away with the rest of the paper that was generated every week by, by them. So, yeah. And, and, of course, they're also kind of artefacts because you can see, because Alan's got quite a heavy hand on the keyboard, you know, and there's, there's, there's places where the, the typewriter key's gone right through the paper. There's all sorts of cigarette burns on them, coffee stains. I kind of used highlighters to separate out the information and the descriptions and, and, and everything. And there's Alan's handwritten uh, corrections and stuff. So, yeah, so they're, they're quite interesting artifacts. So I thought it was worth un, 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 or disinterring them so that I could give you the, the extra information that you won't find anywhere else but on this on this podcast thank you so much for that too i mean that, that was incredible like just having the conversation was one thing but having access to to to, to those bits for icing mm. on the cake in a giant way mm. uh let me ask i'm i'm curious if you have any uh recollection or knowledge of the kind of print circulation for the the actual issues like did they hold steady um obviously the 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 collected books have sold in the millions uh at, at this point but those issues like you know direct market book when the direct market had a couple years of life but not so many not even a decade probably um i don't know the exact figures off offhand i mean somewhere i should have a royalty statement that pr probably has got those figures on it but my impression is, or my kind of, what I can remember of it is that the first issue did really, really quite well, by which I mean, I don't know, 150,000, which was probably a healthy sum for those days. And then as always happens, the second, third issue sold less. But I think once it got down to the sales on the third issue, it kind of held steady because I think, you know, the people who liked it really liked it. And knowing that it was a finite series, probably wanted to collect the whole thing. And also because in those days, there weren't trade paperbacks, really. So if you wanted to read it, you had to buy it and, and keep it. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I, I think it sold quite well. But as you say, it was really when it got to the trade paperbacks and particularly when the movie came along, that the sales just went through the roof, you know, to well, quite frankly, unimaginable levels, but um, yeah. So what did we uh, threaten to talk about at the end of the thing that I said, like, let's keep a note of that? Yes, yes. You had some story to wrap up at the end here, Dave. Yeah. So, you know, two, two years, more than two years of working on this day in, day out, in sickness and in health, in, in sunshine and rain. And eventually I finished it. I've drawn the last, the last piece on the last page. So now I have to do what I regularly did, which is to send it off to the, the state, send it off to DC Comics in, in New York. So the, the thing that, that, that I did before these days of FedEx, there wasn't any FedEx in, in Britain back when we were doing this. And I used to send it using a service called Data Post, which was run by the British Post Office. And it was, it was like a kind of 
FedEx thing, except you had to take it in to a post office. And if I took it into my local post office, it would take two days to get to New York. But if I took it into London and the big central post office in Trafalgar Square, it would get there the next day. So I got, got, got the artwork, made up the parcel, went via the Xerox house that I used to go to to get full-size Xeroxes and shrunk down Xeroxes made of everything before I entrusted it to the vagaries of, of data post. Sealed up the parcel, got on the train, went up to London, went into the big post office. And normally it was a very pleasant business, but on this particular day, my last day of doing it, I got this really cranky clerk behind the counter. What's, so what's in this package? Oh, it's, it's artwork. Oh, it's artwork. Is it worth a lot of money? Well, no, it's commercial artwork. It's only worth something to the people that are going to print it. Okay, so I'll need to take a look at it. And I say, well, I just spent 15 minutes making a secure package. I've sent loads of these before. Do I really have to open it? Well, you should really. I've got to know what's in it. And it could be anything. And Anyway, we had this long, slightly ill-tempered discussion. In the end, he didn't make me open it. And I was able to pass it over the counter, pay the money, get the receipt, put the receipt in my pocket. And I was a free man. I was now, the, the final package had gone. So I walked up St. Martin's Lane in London towards um, Comic Showcase, which, which was one of the really great comic shops we used to have in London. It was a comic shop that actually sold off the original artwork. I struck a deal with the guy who owned the shop to sell my artwork off. He got a really good deal on it. He did better out of it than I think either of us thought he would um, to, to, to the extent that by the time we got to the 12th issue, this artwork for the 12th issue that I just sent off to, to DC Comics actually had been bought by somebody before publication, before I'd even actually drawn it. So anyway, I was very well known in Comic Showcase. So I bounded, bounded up up the road to Comic Showcase to treat myself to some new comics to celebrate having finished Watchmen. And I bounced in and started looking down the racks and the guy behind the till went, oh, hi, Dave. You look happy. I went, yeah, it's great. I've just sent off the last issue of Watchmen. I'm done. He said, oh, that's great. So uh, what are you working on now? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, tells you something about comics okay so you've done that but what are you doing now what's the next thing you're, you're only as good as your last job but anyway I, I was i was still thrilled despite the counter clerk and despite the guy the guy trying to trying to organize the next treadmill for me that's the uh, greatest comic like, story <laughs> wow so oh my goodness man that was it. And, and so I, I never even actually saw the finished artwork after that, because I think I just had it d delivered straight back to Comic Showcase, who sold it to the guy who pre-bought it. So uh, that was it for me. Yeah, it's amazing. Man. That's so funny. We saw uh, in a um, somehow like somebody got hold of all the all the covers uh, or maybe it was you who just held on to them. I don't know. Um, and in Wizard Magazine, there was an auction. And somebody got them all for a thousand dollars a piece, a twelve thousand dollar lot for yeah. the twelve yeah. covers. I think they were actually owned by Garib Seamus, who was the publisher of Wizard Ma Magazine. I think he ha he had the whole lot lot of them, um, and I think yeah, he did did sell them for for a thousand dollars each. I'm too ashamed to tell you how little money I got for the original Art of Watchmen. The reason I got the 
got a comic showcase to sell it for me was I thought what people want with original comic art are action shots and hero shots and money shots. And a lot of Watchmen is just people standing around talking, as we've just seen in issue 12, page after page of dialogue. I thought nobody's really interested in that stuff. So if I try and sell it, I'll sell a few pages and then I'll just be stuck with the with the rest. So when, when I got offered by Comic Showcase to sell it on my behalf, I, I jumped at it. And well, and I, I'm, now you'll think very badly of me if, if, if I tell you how disastrously little I got for it, but it was in... It was in the tens of pounds. It was in the low tens of pounds per page. And as we know, there's now been pages out there for, I don't know, what, $350,000, something like that. It's, And of course, friends of mine send me emails going, hey, Dave, have a look on eBay, see what your pages are going for. <laughs> no, I don't want to know what they're going for. I don't ever, ever want to know that. Uh, yeah, it's it's brutal, but but uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're doing okay. Like this book has to have been... Uh, re reprinted dozens of times, uh, constantly in print. Like, yeah. and I've got no no complaints about it at all. Watchman has been very very good to me, and you know, um, I'm I'm really happy with the way things panned out. Even even to the degree that IDW did one of their artist edition books, which has got a lot of facsimiles of the original pages, and in a way. They're worth as much to me as as, as the stuff I sold because I've still got it to look at and reminisce about about the old days and i've still got young whippersnappers like you who seem to be interested in it so yeah it, it all works out okay in the end although nothing ever ends never nothing ever ends that's a that's a that's a good way to uh to put it that's a good way to end this episode dave thank you so much for taking the time with us to unpack this final issue of watchmen and to share some anecdotes and some intel about uh about the whole the whole situation you well it, guys you're very, very welcome. As, as, as you know, I'm a big, big fan of your channel and uh, really happy to do it for you. And uh, I hope everybody out there enjoys it. Uh, happy New Year to, yes. to the audience out there, because this is uh, going live on uh, J January 1st. But uh, before we do split, D Dave, is there anything that you would like to uh, to promote? Any social media, uh, any new books impending? Well, I think when we spoke I don't know how long ago it was we spoke. It must have been a year ago. I, I was talking to you about my autobiography and my autobiography um, is getting closer and closer to publication. It looks like it's going to be sometime in the middle of 2022. Um, and I've seen some proof pages from it and it, I'm really pleased with the way it looks. It's got all. It's got most of the anecdotes I've told you, you this afternoon, but plenty more besides and it's got, man, it's got old artwork I've, I've uncovered, you know, my first drawing of Superman when I was like seven years old and uh, stuff that I, I hope people will find um, in, in, interesting. And I'm sure you, you guys will enjoy it because you're well known for your behind the scenes, in-depth look at the at lives in comics. And this is, I think, a, a pretty accurate uh, telling of my time in comics with my in influences and the various odd things I've worked on. And, the good deals and the bad deals, you know, and the money and the and, and, and the not so much money. But I greatly enjoy doing it. But it's going to have to get out there soon because, you know, I've already had to add an obituary to, to, to one entry in it. And I don't want to add too many more of those. So it'll it'll be out next year anyway. And um, as, as I think I, th I threatened before, I'd be very happy to come back on here and uh, go through it with you. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear that. I, I can't wait for that to come out. Um, I think about that all the time, about autobiographies, biographies, histories of really the last couple of decades. You know, I'm really excited to see this come out. So that's great news, Dave. Glad to hear it. Okay, good. When when that comes out, please let's let's do this again. Let's 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 you know have another conversation, uh, chat it up, and let the let the audience for the YouTube channel know. Uh, this video alone is going to get us a lot more subscribers. Uh, so you, like, want to help help you sell that book anyway that we absolutely can. sure. I'll I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much, Dave. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Dave. Okay, guys, and ha Happy New Year, everybody out there.